Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. All right, good morning. Every September, thousands of people, uh, I think around 70,000 from what I can find online, flood the Rose City for what is known as Comic-Con. Out of curiosity, has anyone ever been to Comic-Con? Okay, a few people here actually have been to it. Um, I have never been, but it, from my understanding, it's for comic book fanatics, and uh, people dress up, and I've seen people throughout our city, although in our city, that could be any given weekend, um, is the reality. But uh, one genre is the post-apocalyptic, and it became wildly popular through the show, The Walking Dead. Now, out of curiosity, who has watched The Walking Dead? At least one episode. Anybody? Okay, I watched multiple seasons and I eventually gave up because I was like, they're never, they're never going to get to the end of this. And I don't know if it's still on or not, um, but I, I watched it for a few seasons. If you're unfamiliar with The Walking Dead, it's a TV series and it features survivors of a zombie apocalypse trying to stay alive under near constant threat of attacks from mindless zombies known as walkers. Now, that's going to make no sense if you've never seen the show, so my homework is to go and YouTube and watch a clip of, of The Walkers. The passage we're looking at today describes the spiritual state of mankind without Christ. And it's kind of similar. It, it describes us as mindless spiritual beings who are hopeless, like the walking dead. But as we'll see, God loves us. And he initiates salvation through his mercy and through his grace. This weekend, we're starting our annual Vision and Values series, where we revisit our vision as a church and we revisit our values as a church. Uh, for some of you, it's the very first time. For others, you've heard it multiple times. But it's always a reminder for us, what is it that kind of sets us as a church? What are those things that we really value? And so today, we're looking at our value number one, which is the gospel. Think about the gospel. It's a word you hear a lot in the church that, that you should hear a lot. But the gospel is the most important thing that we have to share with others. It's this good news that the Father, through Jesus, is reconciling and restoring all things back to himself. But this news is only good because it's offered to mankind on the account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the good news is only good news because of Jesus and, and what his life did. That Jesus came and he offered us, mankind, salvation by grace through faith. And that those who repent and place their faith in Jesus are forgiven of their sins. They're justified by God and they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So this morning, uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians or the app on your phone or tablet, whatever you have, to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And what we'll find in these verses is a snapshot of the gospel. Like this is a place that someone says, what's the gospel about? You could turn and say, here's a snapshot of it. And it's one of the most eloquently phrased explanations of the gospel in the entirety of the Bible. So let me pray for us as we get ready to look at God's word. God, we come to you this morning. We come with holy expectancy to have an encounter with you. God, I want you to speak this morning through your word. God, I ask that 
uh, in all humility that you would speak through me. God, that we would leave here having an encounter with you. God, that we'd be reminded afresh and anew of your mercy and your grace, what you offered us in this, what we, what we call the gospel, what that good news actually means. And God, may that change us. May that reminder of what you offered us and, and that you're changing us from within spur us on this year as we value the gospel above all else. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to break this down into three parts this morning, this past. So I'm kind of telling you, like, on the front end, here's the sermon, and then I'm going to, going to kind of break that down. Uh, first thing we're going to do is look at is that apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead. And so we were dead, we were disobedient, we were doomed. And I want us to just kind of set in that for a minute. Yes, that's an unpleasant picture. You might think, man, that's not really encouraging. I show up for church for encouragement. But it is the first part of the gospel. And that we have to understand how desperate we were before we get to the good news. Second thing we'll look at is with Christ, we are spiritually alive. So we go from being dead in ourselves to with Christ, we're spiritually alive. And it's through God's character, through God's work. And that's, it's God all throughout. And then the third thing we'll look at is that in Christ, we are God's workmanship. That salvation is a gift, right? We just came out of Christmas season, so we're kind of we're familiar with the idea of gifts and, and what it looks like, but salvation is a gift. It tells us that no one can boast in their salvation. It wasn't, I was so good, or look at what I brought to the table. But the salvation, as that gift, results in good works. That we're given it as a gift, but then we, in turn, go and do good works. So number one, apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. It starts out, and Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses in sins. So Paul starts by addressing our spiritual state. What I say collectively, of all of us in this room, of all of mankind, in all places for all of history, it says that we were dead prior to Christ. So think of it this way. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So this is the state that we are born into, every single one of us, that we're all in the same category, we're all in the same boat. Every parent sees this with their kids, and all of you have children, but if you have children, you see this with your kids, like no one taught your kid how to sin, right? We all, these are beautiful little angels, and they're perfect, right? But it's like, no one taught them to be mean or selfish, or if you have multiple kids, no one taught them to fight with their siblings. I never sent my, my kids to sin camp, said, here's how you learn how to sin, no, these things are inherent to their nature. Which is why Paul says that we are all spiritually dead from birth. Every single one of us. So the, the, I guess right now it's like we all get to jump into the same camp. Paul says, this is all of you. Now, this is the complete opposite of what our culture will tell us, especially the culture where we live. Our culture tells us that we are basically good. Right? Just, just kind of look deep down within yourself. You're basically a good person. And if we believe in ourselves and our truth, that we can do anything. That sounds really good. And you probably hear that message at, at school and at work and in the community. But here's the reality. That's contrary to what Scripture tells us and what the gospel tells us. And do we want to live our lives by Scripture and the gospel or do we want to live our lives by what the culture tells us? So that's actually contrary to what Scripture tells us. And yes, it, it, while it's possible 
for people not following Jesus to do really good things. Works of art, maybe a talented athlete. They're able to make money. They're able to do humanitarian work. And you say, well, what about these? These things are good. That's because we're all image bearers of God. Because God created all of us. But what this is telling is they can do nothing spiritually because they aren't connected to the source of life, the vine. But they are actually dead. You've probably never heard of Jeremy Bentham. Has anybody ever heard that name? Any philosophers in here or anyone study philosophy? He's the founder of the uh, utilitarianism, which is considered the greatest happiness principle. And he was a very, very wealthy philosopher. In fact, he was so wealthy that when he died in his will, he left a fortune to a London hospital with one condition. It's pretty, pretty funny to think about it. His condition was that he had to be present at every board meeting. You think, well, he just died. Well, supposedly... For over 100 years, Jeremy Bentham's remains were wheeled into the boardroom and they were placed at the head of the table. His skeleton was dressed in 17th century garb with a little hat and he was given a wax head. You can actually Google this and find an image of this, this wax head and this body that they would will into the board meeting because that was part of the will. You get all this money with this condition. And here's where it's, it's kind of funny if you listen. In the minutes of every board meeting, there was a line which read, Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. Well, of course he never voted. He was dead. In the same way, this is what this verse is telling us, that we were spiritually dead before God made us alive with Christ. That we were present in life, but not really voting, spiritually speaking, until God gave us life. And so you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then Paul goes on to say, here's how you were disobedient. So he tells us the state that we were in, and now he gives us kind of specifics. Here's how you were disobedient. Let's look at verse 2 and 3. It says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So instead of following God, we followed three other influences. We followed the world around us. We followed Satan. We followed our own sinful desires. So prior to coming to Christ, prior to following Christ, we follow or we're controlled by the world's influence, by the values of our culture, by the values of our society. Right? I mean, Think about the last just few years as we, as we see kind of the tide shift, right, from year to year. Let's just say take the last five years. And you can see how people are shaped and influenced, right? Generations, right? They're, they're shaped by different things and different values. And so we, prior to coming to Christ, that was our values. That's where we got our values from, which are more often than not, not always, we need to recognize where they line up, but more often than not, they're contrary to God's values, and so he's telling us that we allowed other things other than God to become our master. And that we were supposed to carry the will of God. Instead, we obeyed the impulses of our body and our minds. What does our body tell us? It says, have sex or eat or drink or take it easy or get angry. And we do it. Our minds say, make your own decisions or do things your way. And we obey. Paul describes this predicament further in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, which I think I have a slide for that verse. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such very powerful verse. If I I weren't mistaken, Paul might have been writing to 2023 in our world. And so according to this passage, we were disobedient. We followed the the values of our culture and society, but we also followed Satan. Have have you ever considered yourself a Satanist? Have you ever gone to a room and say, here's a fun fact about my life. I used to follow Satan. It's possible for someone in here, but typically we we don't think of ourselves following Satan. But it says according to this, we followed Satan. The gospel describes Satan as the ruler of this world and describes how Satan works in the lives of unbelievers. And that we, in a very real way, we join the rebellion by becoming sons and daughters of darkness. This is in contrast to what Paul will tell us later in Ephesians chapter 5. We're not going to study that, but um, it talks about being, being part of light, being people of light. And then we go from the darkness, but at one time, we were people of darkness. And then finally, we followed our own sinful desires. It's easy to point around and go, well, I did this because of this, and this happened because of this, all these external factors. But Scripture actually points to reality is that those, those things of, of sin and temptation, that they come from within us, that they're desires that we have. And so Psalm 51.5 tells us this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born into a fallen state. And what this means is it puts us in subjection to God's condemnation, as verse 3 calls us children of wrath. In theological terms, what Paul is describing is this, what we call total depravity. What this means is every aspect of our being has been infected with this deadly disease called sin. But in a few minutes, this is where I want you to hang on, right? It's easy to hear this first part, and you can go, Man, I thought this was about the gospel, the good news. All you're giving me right now is the bad news, right? We got, we got to start there. But what we'll see is this, this hopelessness, this state that we all found ourselves in. This disease only has one cure, and that cure is a new birth in Christ. Think of it this way. God did not send Jesus to improve us. I think that's where sometimes the message gets confused. People are like, oh, that's the, you know, you got to go to church to improve yourself, right? God did not send Jesus to improve us, our state of death. Rather, he sent Jesus to replace us altogether with himself. So what we all needed to be was be replaced entirely. And so before we proceed, let that sink in, that we were dead in our sins. And Paul starts here for a reason. Because in order to understand the gospel, in order to understand its value, you have to come to an understanding of what you were saved from. Sure, I'm like most of us. What do we prefer? Let's jump to the good news. I don't want to think about the bad news. I don't want to think about my mess. I don't want to think about my rebellion. I don't want to think about my wrongdoing and my sin, right? We do this every time we get in any really conflict with another individual in our lives, right? Like, I don't want to recognize where I was wrong. <laughs> Can't we just move on to the, to, the, to the good stuff? But here's the reality. If we don't spend time wrestling with the extent of the problem of sin, we will never love the gospel and we'll never be committed to its spread. Because there'll be a disconnect of us thinking that we earned it or that we deserved it in some way, which we did not. And until we understand the problem, we will not truly cherish the grace 
that God has offered us. We don't have any understanding of what it was that he did for us on the cross. So I've got this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this. So the reason we think too lightly of the Savior is we think too lightly of our sin. Only he who has stood before his God, feeling the rope of God's judgment about his neck, will be the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him. Sometimes we think too lightly of our Savior because we take too lightly our sin. We don't understand the, the depth of what it was that he did at the cross. And so what Paul has done in these opening verses, he described our life apart from Christ. He says, we were dead, we were disobedient, and we were doomed. But hang on, there's good news coming. So open your ears. Don't, don't close it off. Say, man, Matt's just piling on this morning. There's good news coming. And, and uh, number two, with Christ, we are spiritually alive. So Paul's drawn our attention. He wants us to kind of lean in, feel kind of the filthiness and the ickiness of, of the depth of the depravity. And the reason he's doing this is he now wants to take this big old magnifying glass and he wants to magnify the mercy and the grace of God in saving us. Because we were desperate and hopeless without any hope at all. And so like a black uh, backdrop to a diamond, Paul comes in with two of the sweetest words in all of scripture. Verse four, he says, but God. Not but Matt, not but fill in your name, not but the president, not but your mom, not but your dad, not but the bishop, not but the pope, not but, not, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. But God, like two of the most life-giving words in all of scripture. He could have left us in this category of being dead in our trespasses and sins. No, it says, but God, we were lifeless. We were hopeless. We were under condemnation to be sentenced to eternal separation from God and what Scripture describes as hell. But God came to our rescue. Let that sink in for a minute. This dire predicament where we had found ourselves in, we suddenly it's changed and reversed. It's flipped completely upside down on its head. Why? But God. Because God stepped into our reality. God stepped into our mess because of God's character. It tells us that, that first, for God's rich mercy, but God being, go back, but God being rich in mercy. The Old Testament describes God as abounding in mercy and that he delights in his mercy. But like this brings God pleasure. You know, if you're, if you're really good at something, right, you delight in it. You're like, man, this is, this, is my, this is my jam, right? I'm delighting in this. Well, God's full of mercy, and he's delighting in his mercy. God's mercy is also free. It tells us in Romans 9, 16, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And then God gets his delight from extending his mercy to us. Second, because of God's great, uh, great love with which he loved us. Unconditional love is at the heart of the gospel. Right? If you love someone unconditionally, right? there's no strings attached. There's unconditional love. The reality is most of us love people with strings attached. Like, I love you as long as you don't do this, this, and this. As long as you don't cross this line. As long as you don't get into my personal space. As long as you allow me these things. But unconditional love is at the heart of the gospel. But this really only make, becomes precious to us. We only really get an understanding of this 
and God's grace as we start to see our own weakness more clearly. As we start to understand the stuff that he just told us about in the first few verses, we understand the weight and depth of our sin. Only then do we start to understand this unconditional love that God has given us. Because here's the reality. If you start to see that in yourselves, and I'll speak for myself, you start to look at yourselves and go, I'm unlovable. I remember we're at the Portland Rescue Mission at the harbor. Some of you have heard this before, but it was a couple years ago. We were serving dinner. And these are for men recovering from substance abuse. And this man that was, I think he's in his 60s, one of the older guys there, in tears. He said, it means so much that you guys come and love on us and serve us. He said, because most days we feel unlovable because of what we've done. Most of these men are separated from their families. They don't get to see their children. A lot of them have they've been divorced because of the choices of, once again, the substance abuse. And not all, but most of them have given their lives to Christ at this point. And I remember I stepped in, and I just, I don't remember the guy's name, and I said, look, here's the reality. None of us were lovable. Your sins look different than mine, but I also have sinned just like you. But because of God, we are all lovable. But oftentimes, we, we will gravitate back towards our sin, right? Not, not necessarily even a sin, but we start to, we just kind of sink down in it. Like, oh, I'm just not, not lovable. Well, that, that is true. But God stepped in and made you lovable. Paul writes that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, while we were still sinners, dead, depraved, doomed, that Christ died for us. I've heard it said this way. Until the gospel seems too good to be true, you haven't really understood it. This message seems too good to be true, does it not? Like, this sounds like a pretty good deal. Like, this is a pretty good bargain. You know, it's like when I go to Ross and I find the $150 pair of jeans for five bucks, I'm like, I think they made the mistake here, right? They messed up. It's like, this deal sounds too good to be true. So what prompted God's salvation? His mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness. That's what prompted his, his salvation, his offer to us. It wasn't because he looks at, oh, there's, man, look at, look at what he's doing. No, we were all in the same category, but his mercy and his love, which he delights in, his grace, his kindness. And now we see Paul move on to God's work in verses five through seven. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we see that God, by his power, now provides us new life. And so he focuses on this idea that God made us alive gives us this new life. He does it together with Christ. Christ is uniting all things back to himself. And so what Paul is doing, he's reminding us of now our union with Christ. That now we are attached to Christ. That we're, that we're bonded to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. All that sin, right? It says we were that's, that's the key word, that we were dead. But all the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so to capture what Paul is saying, we can put it like this. You have been saved, past tense. You are being saved, present tense. And you will be saved, future tense. And then Paul continues on with our union with Christ, verse 6. It says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This means that because of Christ's resurrection, that those who believe in him, that we, will, we are given new life spiritually in this age. 
right? And, and he talks about a lot about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, right? We get to live in that reality in the here and now, but not entirely yet. But that we will also be given a renewed physical body when Christ returns. And he talks about this idea in 1 Corinthians 15 of this future resurrection. And so to summarize, what God did for Christ, he did at the same time for believers. So if you're believers, in some way, when Jesus Christ got out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, you got up with him. You ever thought about that? I was dead, right? When we do baptism, right? We've done some baptisms back at Easter. I'm praying this year that we have more baptisms. I love the imagery that we see. Like, essentially, you're getting into a coffin. That's what I tell you. Like, we're, we're going down. You're, this is your burial. Then you get to come up. And you're, you've been raised to new life. That's why we do a public display. That's why I loved it when we did one out here on a cold April morning at the swimming pool. Because I'm like, I want people to be walking by. and drive. I want them to be like, what in the world are they doing? So then we can say, well, that person was dead, and they came back to life, right? And then we like, what? Are you going to be on the news? And you get to explain what that means to them. It's that song that we sang, I think, right before I got up here. I, I wrote it down. It says, I ran out of that grave. That is your reality, that you were dead, and then when Christ came and died on your behalf, got up out of the grave, that you got out of the grave with him. And that now you can walk in this new spiritual reality of being alive. You're no longer dead. You're alive because of Christ and because of Christ alone. And that is the good news that we have. Tony Marita, you can go to the next slide. Uh, Pastor points out this. He calls the great reversal between verses 1 and 3 and verses 4 through 7. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but now we're alive with Christ. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. Now we're raised up with Christ. We were children of wrath. Now we're seated with Christ. We were children of wrath. Now we're recipients of generous mercy. We were children of wrath, but now we're recipients of great love. We were children of wrath, but now we're recipients of rich grace. We were children of wrath, but now we're recipients of God's kindness. We were children of wrath, but now we're trophies of God's grace. Now we see this great reversal between the state that we started in, our condition that we're all in, to now the condition that we're made alive in Christ. Which brings me to our third and final point. In Christ, we are God's workmanship. Look at verses uh, 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So Paul says that grace comes through faith. So what is our response? What is our responsibility? Simple belief. How do we, how do we appropriate what Paul just told us? We have faith. We have faith and we have belief of what God has done. And Paul just told us it is a gift. God's grace is a gift through and through. So I think sometimes we, we realize that and go, yeah, I can't earn my salvation. But there's like we get saved and we think we have to earn our salvation after we're saved. Like, oh no, I messed up. Oh no, I didn't do this perfect. Oh no, I didn't do this, right? And there's, yes, there's a time for confession or repentance, but it's like if it was a gift back then, it's a gift all throughout. You know, or, or I believe what we call the, um, I can't even think of the terminology right now. <laughs> Once saved, always saved, right? I, be, I don't believe you can lose your salvation if you're truly saved and truly in Christ. And somebody says, oh, you can do this. I say, yeah, but if you can, that, shows, that says you're more powerful than Christ. That says that your sin has a leg up on Christ. And I don't think that that's reality. That it is a gift. It's a gift that we have to return to. So our, God's grace is a gift. Our faith is a gift. God's salvation is a gift. And it's the most precious gift that we've ever received. 
The grace of God not only is what offers us salvation, but it also secures our salvation. And so yes, it's grace at the beginning that offer, but it's also grace all throughout that secures it. And we can't lose it, right? Some gifts you can lose. In fact, I'm pretty confident my children have lost some of their Christmas presents already. Not because I've gotten rid of them, but you know, they've misplaced a book or misplaced a toy and one brother stole from another. You can't find it. You're like, what happened? I just got this. You can't lose this gift. Because there's nothing in Christ that you can do today to make him love you more. And there's nothing you have done that would make him love you less. And so therefore, we should never think of salvation as a one-time transaction that God provides grace, we provide faith, but it's all grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. And so that our salvation is a gift. And it has been a gift that we've been entrusted to go and share with others. Here's a gift. Now go and share this with those around you. So don't be selfish with your gift. Go and share it. That's that's why we look at this as our number one value, the gospel, right? We have to start there. We can't skip ahead to to this family component that we're going to talk about next week. We can't skip ahead to the mission without the gospel, without understanding we were in this state, our city is in this state, and God wants us to invite all people on this journey of this really this freedom that we're given in Christ because of Christ's mercy and grace and kindness and love. He extended that to us, and he wants us to help extend that to others. And then Paul finally reminds us that salvation results in good works. Verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So first, salvation is not by works. If it were by works, then those who are saved would be the ones receiving glory. Look what you did. And you're able to earn this. But it's not by works. Second, we must see, by going back to the previous verses, that salvation is only by grace and it's only a free, it's a, it's a free gift. And third, we must understand that salvation is through faith and trust him alone for our salvation. So if you've ever wondered, why was I created? What was I created for? Paul just told us, we are created for good works. It actually says that we are created for good works, which he prepared beforehand. So before you ever born, God had prepared these things. It says that we are his workmanship. Right? Think about an artist or a woodworker, right? They're, they're, they're designing this beautiful table, whatever. Like we are his workmanship. We're a potter with the clay, right? Kind of spinning the wheel. Like God is God had created us for these things, and he's working us into that to look more and more like him. And so salvation is not based on works, but the good works that Christians do are a direct result and consequence of God's new creation work. And so yes, we're called to go and do these things. We're called to go and live lives of faithfulness and obedience. But not the obedience so we can beat our chest and say, look at me, but it's because God is changing you. He's changing your desires. He's changing your wants. He's changing your values so that you look more and more and more like his son. And so we are God's work of art. We are his masterpiece. Martin Luther said, instead of faith, instead, faith is God's work in us. That changes us and gives us new birth from God. It kills the old Adam and makes us completely different. It changes our hearts, our spirits, our thoughts, and all of our powers. It brings the Holy Spirit with it. Yes, it is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing, this faith. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, it already has done them and continues to do them without ceasing. 
Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. He stumbles around and looks for faith and good works, even though he does not know what faith and good works are. So Martin Luther's just hitting this point that it, it, it becomes who you are. It becomes your identity. Not that you create a checklist and go, I've got to do these things because I'm supposed to so I can continue to be a Christian. No, it's that these things will naturally come, right? And you might be thinking, well, I don't do all this. It comes in time. It's, it's a long obedience in the same direction. So I'm not saying to beat yourself up, but these things will come as God is changing us. So Ephesians 2, it starts by reminding us of what we, we all were, the walking dead. But it ends with the reminder that we are now all the walking alive. And that we were created for good works. The good works that God set before us. And as conduits, I love that word, as conduits of his grace and the kingdom on earth. I got just two more things to wrap it up here. In Corinthians, in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul gives us a list of those who, continuing in their evil, cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I want you to hear this list, and I'm going to uh, give us a Dallas Willard quote that goes with it. So Paul writes this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you hear this and you think, man, 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 what are you talking about? He says, this group cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those practicing homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Then he adds, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I love that. He makes that connection because you hear that list and if you're like, oh, I'm not doing any of those things. I'm good. And he says, and such were some of you. But God washed you, sanctified you, justified you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Dallas Willard of this, uh, of this list in 1 Corinthians 6 says this, if I, as a recovering sinner myself, accept Jesus' good news, I can go to the mass murderer and say, you can be blessed in the kingdom of the heavens. There is forgiveness that knows no limits to the pederast and the perpetrator of incest, to the worshiper of Satan, to those who rob the aged and the weak, to the cheat and the liar, the bloodsucker and the vengeful, blessed, 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 as they flee into the arms of the kingdom among us. Now he hit on some hard categories in that quote. He you know, some categories, if I'm honest, and he, and he talks about this in the book that I'm reading right now, that, that you kind of go, I'm uncomfortable. Sometimes I don't want God's grace to extend to, to certain groups of people, if I'm completely honest. Sometimes I don't think certain groups of people deserve God's grace and God's love. But I love how he puts it. But if I, as a recovering sinner myself, accept Jesus' good news, then I can go to XYZ group of people and say, there's room at the cross for you as well. And this is why the gospel is our first value at Sojourn. Because we get to go to the world around us, whether we're comfortable with their sin or uncomfortable with their sin, and invite them on this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus as he is uniting all things back to himself. You see, Christianity is not about becoming righteous enough to eventually be accepted by God. It is about accepting the righteousness of God as your own that God has extended this invitation to you. And so the question is, have you ever received this offer of grace to be saved? If you never have, you can do that today. If you've never accepted this offer, this gift of salvation for yourself, all you have to do is, Paul already told us, believe and have faith. 
right? I think some people come and go, man, I've that all figured out. A to Z, like, no, believe and have faith and walk in it. The reality is none of us have figured it all out yet. <laughs> we are, that's part of the faith element in this. Other than we believe that God did it for us, we've accepted that and we've had faith that he is completing it. And so for those of you who have already received this gift of salvation, may you remember that this morning. May you remember as we go into this new year that this is why the gospel is our first value above all else, that we'll remember this, that we'll praise God by lifting our voices in song, that we'll be generous with our time this year, with our talent, with our treasure as an act of worship. So let me pray for us and then we're gonna respond to the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for First and foremost for you, God, you are holy, you are worthy, you're honor, all praise and glory. God, what a fresh reminder that we all found ourselves in the same category, that we were dead and sin and our trespasses. God, that it was a death that we chose. But God, you stepped into our reality, you stepped into our mess that we had made, and you stepped into our rebellion because you loved us, because you had mercy and grace and kindness and you bestowed that upon us. God, for that, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you that you allowed us to have a place at your table because you provided that through you, sending your son and his life that was sinless, his death, his resurrection, and that now we can go from being dead in our trespasses and sin to having life, being made alive and new in you. So God, we thank you. God, I pray that that reality hits us in a new way this morning, that it hits us afresh like a wave in the ocean. And God, that we can understand that just a little bit more, that we understand the depths of the reality that we were in, but now the, the good news that you have given us. And God, we thank you for this good news. Oh, how sweet it is. God, may this year, may this spur us on to be reminded that everyone around us is in that same group. God, that many in our city have not yet come to see the good news. They're stuck in verses one through three. God, they're still dead. But that you have given us this conduit of your grace, this opportunity to go and to, and to invite them. God, to throw the life raft to them. To say there's room for you at the table because God has made a place, pull up a chair. So God, may this spur us on this year to share that mercy and grace with others that you've shared with us. God, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.